The words multi-21 mean nothing to you unless you're an F1 fan. In March 2013, they became immediately iconic, and to this day, Mark Webber's furious delivery of that phrase behind the podium at the Malaysian Grand Prix is one of the defining moments from his spiky rivalry with teammate Sebastian Vettel during their time together at Red Bull. Do not adjust your podcast player, you are hearing this right. Bring Back V10s has veered off course into the V8 era for our latest episode as we revisit everything that went on around this race early in the final season of normally aspirated engines in F1. I'm Glenn Freeman and joining me for this special episode are two men who know the V8 era of F1 very well, Ed Straw and ex-F1 driver and now Sky Sports expert Karun Chanduk. Karun, welcome to what I suppose we should call Bring Back V8s. Uh, when you think of Malaysia 2013, dare I ask, what's the first thing that comes to mind? I mean, it's got to be that moment in the cool-down room, isn't it, where Weber slams his drinks bottle on the table and goes, multi-21, Seb. Uh, you know, as you said at the top, that was a, you know, a phrase that none of us had heard of. And frankly, you know, I don't think anyone outside the sport would have would even know what we're talking about, as you rightly said. But it's become such an iconic part of Formula One rivalries, that moment. So, yeah, absolutely that cool-down room moment where we, we heard Mark say it for the first time. And, Ed, you, you'd been covering F1 for many years by this point, and you were in Malaysia that weekend. So what's your standout memory? Yeah, it comes from slightly before that. Again, the same topic, Mark Webber making his displeasure known. If you watch the finish of that, Vettel crosses the line, waving near the pit wall. Webber goes completely to the opposite side of the track, kind of to say, I'm not celebrating with the pit wall. And then once he's finished, he just chops across the track, right across the bowels of Vettel to make his displeasure known. That always stands out in my mind because we were following that race in the media centre without any kind of audio. So it was actually quite difficult to know everything that had been transpiring. I was getting some messages from people who were actually watching the, the coverage from home. So I was starting to get a bit of an understanding of what was going on. But that was the thing that really hit me to say, oh, Mark Webber's really, really unhappy about this. And then, of course, all the other stuff followed. Yep, and we're going to spend plenty of time getting into that. Before we get going, this is your last chance to get your questions in for our series finale episodes where we'll be answering your questions about anything to do with the V10 era of F1 from 1989 to 2005. As by the time our final regular episode of the series is released, we'll have already started recording the Q&As. So now's your last chance. Let us know your questions using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter. Email BringBackV10s at the-race.com or submit a question along with a five-star podcast review if you like the show enough to give us that rating. We'll catch up on a few uh, review shout-outs as well. So thank you to JMM, KPA09876, which just rolls off the tongue, Ethan Henson, the Gov 23 Zach Curley, and Aldous. And I think that's the Aldous of YouTube fame based on a recent tweet that I saw. Thank you to everyone who has left us a five-star review. They do mean a lot, and I make sure that I read them all. Remember, if you'd like to get early access to new episodes of Bring Back V10s, plus bonus content and listen to them with no ads, check out the Race Members Club. You can sign up by visiting the-race.com forward slash members club. But let's go back to 2013 then, not usually, not as far back as we usually go. F1 headed to Malaysia for the second round of the season, with Kimi Raikkonen leading the championship for Lotus after winning the season opener in Australia. 
Raikkonen had taken the first win of his comeback after sitting out 2010 and 2011 towards the end of 2012 in Abu Dhabi with Lotus, which is the famous leave me alone, I know what I'm doing race. And now 2013 had got off to the best possible start. Team boss Eric Boulier said Lotus had worked hard to keep the strengths of its car, namely looking after the tyres on long runs, while improving the weaknesses, and he felt the team was better everywhere in 2013. And he felt Raikkonen had taken a step forward too. Boulier said Kimi built himself up over the last year, and he is starting this season like he finished the last one. The environment we have at Endstone is that we want people to be creative and be themselves. And we are doing this by limiting the politics and in Kimi by limiting what he hates. So Ed, how good a fit was the Raikkonen-Lotus combination in 2012 and 2013? Yeah, it worked very, very effectively. I must confess to have been slightly sceptical about Raikkonen's return. If you remember, he'd had talks with Williams about possibly coming back before uh, Lotus picked him up. But the team was well set up to make the most of him. Team principal Eric Bouillet, his reputation was tarnished a bit by his stint at McLaren after, but I think he was a very effective team boss, often in difficult circumstances. But he made sure that Raikkonen was kept in his optimum working window, shall we say. Uh, it wasn't stunningly quick, Raikkonen, at, at that point, as he had been in the, in the previous decade. And in fact, during those two seasons, the team reckoned that Grosjean, when things were right, was actually the quicker driver by a few tenths. But Raikkonen was metronomic, and they needed somebody like him with good experience, able to get the results. They'd lost Robert Kubica, of course, in 2011 to the, the rallying accidents. And they weren't able to compete to sign a Lewis Hamilton or a Sebastian Vettel type. So they needed a, a slightly tainted driver like Raikkonen, tainted by which I mean he'd been basically paid not to race by Ferrari for uh, uh, for 2010. So that hurt his reputation a bit. So yeah, he worked very, very well. He was third in the championship in 2012. He was third in the championship in 13 by the time he, uh, he walked away with a, f- a few races to spare. So yeah, I think it was a really, really good partnership. Maybe there was the odd win left on the table that could have been had, but they've worked very, very well for each other. And of course, Raikkonen ends up with a Ferrari deal off the back of this. Nobody at Lotus was getting ahead of themselves in early 2013. Boulier talked about building up momentum to maybe be champion again in the future if the team could keep fighting for wins over the coming years. And Raikkonen said that while the team was doing a good job, it's no secret we don't have the same money as Ferrari, Red Bull or Mercedes. And if we had some more sponsors, we'd have a better chance against those teams. Lotus technical boss James Allison, who's doing okay at Mercedes these days, said he felt Lotus had the third or fourth fastest car and he didn't think it would be a given that Lotus could always use tyre life to its advantage to win races by making fewer stops as it had in Australia. Karun, Lotus has since gone on to be Renault again and now Alpine and they are yet to return to the heights they reached with those Raikkonen victories in 12 and 13. But could this team have achieved any more than it did in this era with Kimi as its lead driver? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, it's it's hard. Well, it's hard to tell because there was all sorts of stuff going on with the money side of things, wasn't it? You know, on one hand, you'd be hearing stories of they've got all sorts of financial difficulties and they're struggling to pay bills. But then they somehow got a Mercedes engine contract and, you know, around the same time and stuff like that. And there's no question about the fact that the 2012 and the 2013 cars were both very good cars, you know, they won races, they got podiums. Uh, Grosjean even, you know, you could argue could have won at Nürburgring, for example, in that era and stuff. So it wasn't just Kimi. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think maybe, I, I don't know if actually the answer is, could they have done better with a Fernando Alonso in the car, for example? And probably the answer is yes. You know, I, I, I agree with Ed that Kimi came back as a very solid driver, metronomic in delivering the points, but he wasn't the out and out devastatingly fast Kimi Raikkonen we saw in 2003, 4, 5, for example. So uh, ultimately, you'd actually say that at that era, if they had a Vettel or an Alonso in the car, um, or, or, or a Lewis, of course, they would have probably done better and maybe challenged for the championship more. Raikkonen's win was based around the Lotus being kind on its tyres, as we said, and Red Bull arrived in Malaysia very unhappy that while its car was clearly the fastest on the grid, the tyres were too fragile to handle the basically the force being put through them by Red Bull's car over a race stint. Pirelli went softer with its tyres for 2013 after race strategy started to drift towards one-stops during 2012, and the aim was for the tyres to create two- and three-stop races as often as possible. But Red Bull was rumoured to be lobbying behind the scenes for the tyres to be changed. And after practice in Malaysia, Vettel called the tyre situation a mess and Weber complained that the whole category is geared around tyres at the moment. And even today, if you ask team boss Christian Horner about those early 2013 tyres, he refers to them as like cheese. Unsurprisingly, Lotus felt differently and Boulier was pretty punchy about this. He said... Red Bull are fast on one lap, but then struggle with tyre degradation, which is partially due to the way they designed their car. Some teams are happy and some are not. It's clear that the unhappy teams will now be trying to lobby the happy teams. The situation is not going to get political because one team, Red Bull, is not happy with the tyres. It's true that in past years, the tyres were a little bit more consistent, but they were to some extent invisible to the car performance. Now they are part of the game. Ed, in early 2013, with these softer tyres, did Red Bull have a right to be annoyed about the way it was limiting the performance of their car, particularly in race trim? Yeah, yes and no, to give a definitive answer. Obviously, you can say their control tyres, they're the same for everyone. There'll always be some complaints when it's a spec tyre that everyone has to use, because it will suit some more than others. The tyres at this stage were pretty extreme, though. Pirelli was having to do all sorts of experiments to try and get that degradation that they wanted. I get the impression it wasn't especially controlled, shall we say, and that there did seem to be such a clear relationship between the overall load and the way the degradation went on the tyres. So they felt that you couldn't manage the tyres particularly other than just by going slower and not putting the load through it at all. There was no kind of finesse to it. It was just potluck almost. And obviously we talked about Lotus working very well. It's no coincidence that the previous year, the test car Pirelli had used was a 2010 Renault. So that was the same uh, team. And you can't help but have some of that DNA influence the characteristics uh, of the tyres. Nothing nefarious or wrong there. Just thought the way it is. So... I think part of it is inevitably that at the start of the season there are always going to be problems with it, but it was really extreme. I know the drivers' meetings, there were a number of those that got quite fractious with drivers kicking off just about how stupid that they they were being made to feel because you were driving around two seconds slower than you should have been. And even then you weren't really protecting the tyres. So it was felt to be too far uh, in that direction. And why would you blame Red Bull? Because they did have the best car. Pirelli themselves could see that the load the Red Bull had at the start of the season was more than anyone else. The one thing is, though, we should probably thank Pirelli because looking at the way this season went with Red Bull winning 
every race in the second half of the season at, at a cancer. If we hadn't had this un- uncertainty at the start of the season, it would have been a pretty dull year. So uh, perhaps F1 actually should be thanking uh, Pirelli for what they did. Well, let's let's come on to that in a bit more detail because Pirelli wasn't interested in the complaints it was receiving. Its motorsport boss at the time, Paul Hembury, said, you can take the quotes from the last two seasons and in the first three races, it is exactly the same. When everyone is trying to find out where they are, it tends to start like this, but then it starts to move away when people get used to it. We don't see the need to change anything. We've just had the most exciting Melbourne in years. Do you want us to make boring races? And then he went on to say, to be honest, there's only one critic. Everyone else came and said they don't know what Red Bull were talking about. Red Bull clearly have a lot of performance. Maybe they would like something else, but I'm sure other teams would like other things as well. If you want to favour one team, then the season is over. Karun, this was a common theme in the early years of the Pirelli tyres. You would have had some experience of some of those really fragile ones yourself. Was what Pirelli was trying to do here by effectively mixing things up a bit and limiting the best car. Was it good for F1 to pursue these fragile tyres? Well, we have to go back to, you know, where this all started. And that was the 2010 Canadian Grand Prix, wasn't it? You know, that race where all of a sudden we had an incredible amount of graining. I remember being in that race on the Bridgestones and we just couldn't understand, um, you know, there were moments in the Friday practice when, you know, it was the first day running on that surface with these tires, I remember there was one point that I just put on a new set of tires in the in the Hispania, and I was starting to pass people like Sebastian Boemi, and you know, in front of me, I could see. I remember looking at one of the McLarens. I think it was Button, and he was pulling away, but not by that much. And what it was is, I had a new set, and their their tires had just gone off this massive cliff of graining, and that was suddenly. But I think Bernie tweaked that and went, okay, this is great. We've had a fantastic Grand Prix because of this, because they're all doing two and three stops. That's what we have to do. Set Pirelli this benchmark. And you'd have to argue that here we are a decade later, and it's still a little bit of an unknown, isn't it? Exactly how these tyres work. And, uh, you know, when we get to the race weekend, there's still so many question marks over exactly how much the drivers and teams can push the tyres and where the cliff is. And... Certainly in the early days, it was quite a shock to the system before the teams geared up to the level they are now in terms of, you know, the number of people they have in their tyre departments and their strategy departments analysing the tyres. You know, that grew exponentially in the first sort of four or five years of the Pirelli days. But certainly in that early time, the level of understanding of just how the Pirellis worked was, was, I think, quite premature compared to where we are today. Yeah, I think that 2010 Canadian Grand Prix has a lot to answer for, actually. Uh, another Someone else who had a lot to answer for in early 2013, uh, or something else, was McLaren, because they were having a horrible start to the season with a car that was clearly off the pace. This prompted talk of the team switching back to its 2012 car, as the new design was a radical overhaul that hadn't paid off, whereas in 2012, McLaren arguably had the fastest car on the grid on quite a few weekends. Team boss Martin Whitmarsh was insistent that a 2013 car should be focused on because it had areas of high potential and we know it has potentially more downforce than last year's car. He even went as far as saying, we will make this car into a winning car during the course of the year. Sam Michael echoed those sentiments, saying that the 2013 MP4 28 had McLaren's total focus because the belief was it had greater potential than the 2012 car. 
In his book, Jensen Button called the decision to go with an entirely new car concept for the final year of these regulations a brave but ultimately foolhardy move. Now, Ed, we'll come to the debate over bringing back the old car shortly, but what did McLaren get wrong with this 2013 car? Yeah, I'd probably say uh, baffling and hubristic rather than brave and, and foolhardy. <laughs> it was really strange because they'd had the same car concept for the previous few seasons. It had worked well. The 2012 McLaren had been the fastest car on average. It could have won the championship, but it was operational problems and reliability that cost it. So the problem with the car was the 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 was the underfloor airflow stalled when it was in what should have been the ideal ride height. This is the consequence of a, a slightly modular approach to, to the design. They divided it up into various different design projects and then sort of smashed it all together, and it, it just didn't work. It was less than the sum of its parts. And they had to work on the car, and, and they kind of got it to, a, to an okay level. But when they did, it was really peaky. They couldn't run in the, the ride height range they wanted. So on a smooth circuit, it was all right. As soon as it was bumpy, it was all over the place. All, all the ideas that went into it were, were sound. They went to a puller of front suspension. They raised the chassis height. If you remember, the McLaren had a slightly lower uh, front of the chassis before that. Rear suspension changes, all sorts of side pod and rear packaging <laughs> differences. So all of this made sense. but. Clearly, with hindsight, going to a new philosophy was completely wrong. But ultimately, the problem was the execution. It always was a big risk, given the changes in 2014, which weren't just the engine. Remember, there were big car changes for 2014 coming. It, it, was, it always seemed odd that they went in this direction. But I think, fundamentally, it was the way they did it. And it hinted at some of the problems that were to characterise McLaren during the coming years, and I think ones that they've only recently eliminated, and in fact in some areas are still carrying the hangover from as, as they work in the right direction to eliminate them. Obviously, we know with hindsight that Whitmarsh's claim about winning with the 2013 car proved to be wrong. And as we record this in the summer break of 2021, McLaren still hasn't won a race since 2012. But while there was a big effort to play down the talk of bringing back the previous car in public... Button revealed in his book that there was a big push to make that switch behind the scenes from none other than Ron Dennis. Button said, Sensing that we'd made a tactical error, Ron pressed the team to bring back the 2012 car, which opened up a rift between him and Martin, who felt the 2013 car could be fine-tuned and made to work, but we would struggle all season. As a compromise, some of the 2012 car's features were reintroduced, the exhaust system for one, but it didn't make much difference. The bad season meant that the writing was on the wall for Martin. Ron wanted to run the team again, and that was that. Martin was out. Now, at the time, Sam Michael said there were a few technical issues around bringing the old car back, such as a change to the front wing regulations, crash tests, and McLaren's stock of parts for the older car. Corrine, we do have the benefit of hindsight. Should McLaren have just bitten the bullet and brought back the old car early in the season? I don't know that it's such an easy question to answer, really, you know, because you're, uh, you're assuming that the old car, it does a lap time, is, is going to be quicker um, across the whole range of things. And, and also you're assuming then that there's still more development potential in the 2012 car. Um, it's quite a demoralizing thing for your entire factory if you've got to go back to the old car, really. Uh, and it sounds like it was quite a political play as well between Ron and, and Martin at that time. I mean, unless there's clear evidence that the, 
the old car is half a second a lap quicker or seven, eight tenths a lap quicker than the new one, I wouldn't say it's the right thing to do to go back because you'd have to assume that any car that you introduce in Melbourne across the season, you're going to develop it and it's going to find, you know, at least a second of lap time, um, you know, assuming same circuits and conditions, etc. So, uh, therefore, unless the 2013 car was nearly a second a lap slower than the old one, I'm not sure it would have been the right thing to go back. McLaren was, of course, going into 2013 without Lewis Hamilton in its lineup as the then one-time world champion had flown the nest to race for Mercedes after spending the first six years of his F1 career as a McLaren driver. Hamilton finished fifth on his Mercedes debut in Australia and he said that exceeded expectations after there had not been much optimism around Mercedes over the winter. Lewis said, Who would have thought that I would be competing at the front when everyone was talking us down? When I did the switch from McLaren, I didn't know where we would be and I definitely did not think I would come away from the first race with 10 points and also with the feeling that that is not going to just be a lucky first race. We came into this year expecting it to be a little better than last year, but definitely not anywhere as near as high as we are now. So Ed, given what the Hamilton-Mercedes partnership has gone on to become, to see him speaking like this at the beginning feels like another universe, a completely different world. But was he right at the time that the expectations in and around Mercedes going into 2013 really were that low or was he over-egging it a bit? I think when it comes to the fifth place, he was slightly over-egging it. I don't think that was uh, necessarily uh, a particularly stunning finish, although he had qualified third, if memory serves, in Australia. So perhaps that was a little better than expected. But the fact they wanted to be a little bit better than 2012, that's perfectly reasonable. Of course, they'd won a race in 2012. So doing a little bit better, let's say winning three races, which is exactly what they did do. So I think Lewis is probably just managing expectations and adding some realism, but not delivering it quite as he uh, intends to, as as he often did at, uh, at, at the time. Because remember, at this stage, the year was 2014. That was where the real focus was. Yes, Mercedes wanted a good season. They wanted to win a few races, but... The real focus was taking that big step forward in 2014 and and Hamilton would have known that. So I I think he's basically saying there, yeah, we want a decent season, but there's a bigger, longer term picture to to look at there. But I certainly don't think when he signed for Mercedes, he went into it with his eyes open. I I doubt if he was quite thinking that fifth place on a good day would be be the peak of his uh, ambitions. But I think he was quite happy that he had a, a quick car under him. And maybe it just reflects the fact that they were quicker than they thought they were in testing. Now, there were some other Hamilton headlines around this time that he probably could have done without, and those came courtesy of Bernie Eccleston, who told the Mail on Sunday that Hamilton had asked him for help getting into Red Bull to be Vettel's teammate. But in the end, uh, Bernie said Red Bull owner Dietrich Mateschitz stayed loyal to Mark Webber and gave him another one-year contract. However, Bernie added, had Mark gone, Dietrich would have signed Lewis. Eccleston then also took credit for Hamilton's move to Mercedes, saying, I told Lewis, why not talk to Mercedes? Lewis rolled his eyes, but I told him he had nothing to lose as he wanted out of McLaren. Hamilton said he didn't know what to make of Bernie's comments, but he said for Eccleston to talk to the press like that made Lewis a bit nervous because he was always so open with Bernie. Uh, Hamilton then added, I said to my management team to speak to all the teams and give me what the best options were. There was no particular one that I was pushing for more. At the end of the day, I'm here at Mercedes and it's the best decision I have ever made. 
And that is an understatement uh, with the benefit of hindsight. Karun, there's there's no question that Lewis um, certainly wouldn't regret now moving to Mercedes. But let's delve into that alternative universe for a moment. What on earth would have happened from 2013 onwards if Hamilton had gone to Red Bull instead of Mercedes? Well, the one I'd like to know is who would have ended up in that Mercedes alongside Rosberg? <laughs> you know, first of all, Rosberg would have probably been a three, four-time world champion, well, depending on who else would have gone alongside him. You'd imagine that at some point when uh, in 2014, when the Ferrari came out and was really not very competitive, Alonso would have been lobbying to get in the Mercedes and banging on that door. So, um, yeah, the, the permutations are, you know, the, the infinity, really. You know, who, who would have ended up in the... Uh, and but I suppose the question you're asking is the Vettel versus Lewis battle. How would that have shaped up? I think it would have been fascinating to see, actually, for 2013 because that car was built for Sebastian, wasn't it? You know, he won the last nine races of the year. The the blown diffuser era, the style of driving the car where it rotated so well in the slow speed corners. That whole car was just designed for Sebastian's style of driving. So it would have been great to see. Um, and then, as we know, Vettel had a terrible season in 2014. A lot of reliability issues and stuff. But actually, he got beaten by Ricardo as well, more often than not. So, um, yeah, who knows? Who knows how that would have all played out? I think we'd also look back at it and think that it was a, a bad decision from Lewis Hamilton in, in the long term, had he gone to Red Bull because uh, Mercedes was ultimately the right place to go in the long run. It just shows how complicated these decisions can be and these things that drivers' careers can turn on. Because I imagine if he was offered outright a Red Bull drive, he'd have probably taken it because they were the best team at that stage. It would have been a logical move. But then the whole of history would have changed completely. And yeah, someone else, Nico Rosberg or or perhaps Kay Chandock would have been in the Mercedes uh, winning championships and races. Yeah, Karun Car- supports that one. I, th- I think you've gone a little bit outside the box. Even I'll admit that. Have I gone into a too ridiculous, a too ridiculous parallel universe? Sorry. Maybe Jack Villeneuve would have made another comeback. Um, I, I, I think Karun's right that looking beyond 2013 is actually really difficult with all the changes that 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 came and the way the performance order of the teams shunted around. I think you know if Vettel and Weber was explosive during this era, imagine a year of Vettel and Hamilton in the same team. And in terms of who would have been in that Mercedes, at least for 13, maybe Michael Schumacher would have stuck around a little bit longer. Um, I think that, you know, as Michael's kind of dithering over if he wanted to stay was what uh, allowed Mercedes to snap up Lewis. So who knows? Michael could have driven at least a a couple of good, good Mercs if uh, he'd stuck around a bit longer. But some real news that broke around this time involving Mercedes was that Toto Wolff was going to take an increased role in the F1 team having initially come in as the new Mercedes motorsport boss, a role that he'd taken over from Norbert Haug. That resulted in the departure of Nick Fry from the role of CEO, which Fry called an entirely amicable split in the book he wrote about the Braun GP story. Wolf said at the time, this team has gone through many shareholdings and restructurings. It was BAR, then Honda, then Ross Braun brought the team. Uh, bought the team, it won the world championship, and now it's Mercedes. So it's about calming down the situation and giving the long-term view and commitment. We've already had a clear indication of how different Mercedes level in in F1 was back then, uh, purely from what Lewis said um, in early 2013. But Wolf gave some interesting insight into what he encountered at Mercedes 
when he appeared on Jake Humphrey's High Performance podcast. So let's have a quick listen to some of the things Toto felt he had to address when he walked through the doors at Mercedes F1. I mean, the first day I walked in, I, I, I went, I arrived in reception and and I sat down in reception and it, it didn't look like a Formula One team. Uh, there was an old Daily Mail on the table from the previous week and coffee cups that we had to dry coffee. And um, and I, I couldn't believe that this was the Mercedes Formula One team. And now you may say, how do dry coffee cups uh, or an old Daily Mail impact on the performance of a Formula One team? But it's all, it shows an attitude. It shows um, attention to detail. And I think this is most important for a high-tech team and all these soft factors that many will ignore because it's not data, it's not aerodynamics, it's not vehicle dynamics um, that, that make a car faster, but all that is part of the values of a team. And if everybody runs in the same direction, everybody acknowledges that attention to detail is important, then eventually the wheel is going to gain some momentum. I, I came into this situation almost like an unknown man. Uh, I've, I've made uh, a success out of my um, investment life, but in Formula One, it's a little bit of an incest environment. Um, everybody seems to be rotating from one team to the other. And, um, and where I felt resistance, I tried to convince, where I couldn't convince, uh, it ended. Ed, Toto, even today, is always keen to point out that it has taken a great group of people around him to help turn Mercedes into what it is today in F1. But how important has he been to the success they've enjoyed since 2014? Yeah, he has played a very important role. Obviously, with the timelines, you know, he wasn't there right from the beginning of the revived Mercedes Works team, so plenty of people had big contributions to make. And obviously, the team boss doesn't design the car. They don't do what might be called the, the heavy lifting. But creating the culture is very important, particularly when it's a manufacturer team. There's obviously some high-pressure from the the stakeholders, investors, etc., that the team boss needs to kind of deal with and not just sort of rain down on those below and cause chaos. So I think what Wolf's been very, very good at is creating a, a team culture where everyone can kind of do their jobs, where the communication's good, where there's a good understanding of what all the different departments in the company do. And that does make a difference if you really understand how everything fits together. We saw that when they went through that long phase of sending up all sorts of different people onto the podium to say, actually, do you know what? The the race engineer is important. The the head of communications is important. The Whoever's dealing with the, the hospitality is you know, really getting everyone to buy into everything. And we've talked before on... It's talked about everywhere about the the lack of the the blame culture. They're good at at finding the problems, but they don't create a situation where there's fear for your job if you make a mistake. So if there's an error, people are happy to flag it up and and deal with it. And I think probably that has paid off most in terms of the sustained success, the kind of initial success in 14, the wheels were turning for quite a long time. But the fact that Mercedes has always been able to hit back and pick up and run with it, just as they're doing in 2021 in difficult circumstances against Red Bull, I think Wolf plays a big part in in setting that, that culture. It takes hundreds, probably thousands actually, of people to make it all work. But the person at the top can do a lot of damage if they're not the right person, and often they're not the right person. 
you've got quite a good team boss if they're neutral, but Wolf seems to actually be a genuine force for force for good in that team. So yeah, he deserves a huge amount of credit. He's a very 21st century team boss. He's not the, not the old school team boss, but I think that's exactly what a team like that needed. So he deserves a huge amount of credit for what's happened. By this point, it was also known that Paddy Lowe was going to join Mercedes from McLaren for 2014. And all of these changes inevitably led to questions about Ross Braun's future with the team that had won the championship in 2009, carrying his name. Braun said one of the best things Wolf did on his arrival was give the board a dose of reality which involved doing a budget comparison with Williams, where Wolf had first come into F1 as a shareholder, and that showed that Mercedes was spending a similar amount in total as Williams, but with more expensive drivers, so it was actually spending less on car development. As for the growing tension behind the scenes, Braun said in his book, Total Competition, written with Adam Parr, what happened at Mercedes is that people were imposed on me who I couldn't trust. I never knew really what they were trying to do. Then in early 2013, I discovered Paddy Lowe had been contracted to join the team and it had been signed off in Stuttgart. When I challenged Toto and Nicky Lauda, they both blamed each other. I met them together to have it out with them and they both pointed to each other. Clearly, the trust had broken down. I had also failed in building relationships with people on the board. I don't know why, but I just didn't have the enthusiasm to spend time in Stuttgart. I didn't make enough of a conscious effort. Wolf said in an interview with Autosport in early 2013 that he would be the biggest fool on earth to kick Braun out of the team and he tried to make sure Braun felt comfortable and settled in his position. Toto added, I don't want to damage the team and its performance with a rash reaction that last year wasn't good so therefore the most senior technical person has to go. Not at all. But Karun, with all this upheaval at such a senior level in the Mercedes team, was somebody high profile always going to end up losing out? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, it's quite clear that you couldn't have Toto and Ross and Paddy and Nikki all in charge of the operation. And, and, and actually, when you look at it, you know, subsequently, Paddy was another one who, you know, was, was moved aside, wasn't he? To make, uh, to make sure that ultimately they have the structure they have now, which was Toto was fully in charge with, with Nikki there, but not, not, you know, 100% full-time as, as non-exec. So it, um, and ultimately, when you look at the success they've had, you'd have to say that, I agree with Ed, is Toto has done a, a fantastic job. You know, the run of success they've had. You even look at the current season where they, they've started on the back foot and, you know, with, with next year's rules coming, you know, he, he really drives that entire operation from within. You know, even little things like allowing the mechanics to go home in the middle of a triple header so they get and rotating some of the car crew and giving them a bit of time off. You know, these are things that, for example, Red Bull aren't doing. And and that I know is coming directly from Toto. And therefore, the mechanics and the, the engineers on the race team and the people back at the factory, you know, they all genuinely feel like he has their best interests at heart. I'm not saying Ross didn't, I'm not saying Paddy didn't, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, ultimately, Toto's done a superb job with that team. And I don't think he and Ross could have coexisted. Fundamentally, I think Ross kind of given us the answer there, hasn't he? Which is he didn't invest time with the Mercedes board to ensure that he was the chosen one, so to speak, in terms of being in charge. And Toto came in with his money, invested, you know, he had he had more skin in the game by that point from a financial standpoint. 
So I think it, it ended up being a relatively straightforward choice for Mercedes. Now, while things were on the up at Mercedes, the opposite was going on at Wolf's previous team, Williams, where after winning a race in 2012, the team had stumbled out of the blocks with a troubled 2013 car. In Malaysia, technical boss Mike Coughlin said that it looked like a car closer to the concept of the 2012 FW34 would be faster. But like McLaren at this stage, Williams wasn't considering going back to its older car. However, it was already considering going back to a 2012-style exhaust system. Coughlin added, We'll go back to the factory and have a complete rethink. Have we got too much to learn in a short time? We see enough pointers that if we can fix something, we will open up a great deal of potential. We think fundamentally we have a car to be in the lower reaches of the top 10. We have some major things to fix. Ed, arguably they didn't ever get around to fixing those problems because this car only scored points twice all season in what at that point seemed like a, a, a low for Williams. Uh, what did it get wrong with that 2013 car? A very big part of it was getting the blowing exhausts working ultimately. This was the period of the Coanda effect. So it, it had the the kind of Red Bull style where you you, you kind of point the exhaust in the, in the side pod into the, the kind of channels to to get the airflow to, to the diffuser, but it's all about getting that airflow to attach to, to surfaces rather than fully containing it, etc. They never really got that that right, despite doing quite a lot of work over the winter with it. But it was curious. They, they then seemed to look for the fix in the wrong place because the car was quite unstable and unpredictable because they didn't have consistent control over that exhaust gas flow to get the, the rear downforce. But they kept making front wing changes, often ones that actually cost them a bit of downforce in, in search of consistency that was just actually costing them more downforce. And they just got really, really lost with it. And there was a change, actually. Coughlin left during the year. Pat Simmons came in. And I think what was very telling is later in the year, they actually went back to a 2012 front wing at one stage, worked better. They also went to conventional rear exit exhausts. Car worked better. Valtteri Bottas got it into the top 10. He got it in Q3 in, in Austin, albeit in very, very cold conditions where the car was working quite well. So... I think it was actually all about just struggling with the Coanda exhausts and and perhaps not realising until it was too late that the work they'd done over the winter hadn't delivered the results they thought it had. They were really upbeat about that. So I feel like they thought, we solved that problem. And then when new problems arose, they thought, well, that box is ticked. It can't be there. And they weren't looking in the right place. So, yeah, a really horrible season. And a shame because the 2012 Williams was a very good car. Yes, it had that slightly random win in Spain, but that car with drivers who were able to deliver the consistent results it merited, would have been top five in the Constructors' Championship, no problem. So it was another blow for Williams in this era where they kind of seesawed. They'd have an up year and then a down year and then an up year, but pretty much of their own making, ultimately. Let's go on to the race then. Rain had affected Q3, so we ended up with Vettel on pole ahead of the Ferraris of Felipe Massa and Fernando Alonso, with Hamilton fourth and Weber's Red Bull fifth, just ahead of the second Mercedes of Nico Rosberg. Meanwhile, championship leader Raikkonen started 10th after getting a three-place penalty for impeding Rosberg in qualifying. The start of the race was also damp, with everyone starting on intermediates, and there was drama straight away as Alonso tagged the back of Vettel's car at the second corner and damaged his front wing. Remarkably, Alonso didn't come in to get the wing changed at the end of the first lap, as Ferrari gambled on it staying attached until a few laps later when everyone was expected to come in to switch to slicks. But that gamble failed and at the start of lap two, the wing dislodged, got stuck under the front of the car and sent Alonso spinning into the turn one gravel trap. 
Team boss Stefano Domenicali said it was a decision taken by the pit wall. And he said, we took a risk that didn't pay off. We take responsibility as the team. Alonso agreed with the decision, though, saying he'd been in constant discussion with the team during the lap and the car felt okay in the first two sectors. But on the back straight, just before the pit entry, the wing had started to come off and there'd not been time for Alonso or the team to notice that and react by bringing him in. Alonso said stopping on lap one would have been too much of a penalty and it was extremely unlucky. And Domenicali added that if the gamble had paid off, Ferrari would have been the hero of the weekend. But Karun, even from the moment Fernando hit the back of the Red Bull, the damage was noticeable. Was that damage significant enough that Ferrari should have known better than to risk it holding on for the sort of four, five, six laps that would have been required to get to the point where you could change for slicks? Yes. I mean, quite clearly, yes, because Alonso <laughs> ended up off the track. Uh, yeah, I remember watching it thinking, you know, what what are they doing? It's, it's quite obvious that when you get to the higher speeds and the load builds and also when you get in and out of the turbulent air and, and you know, you get the wake from the car in front, structurally, you know, I'm, I'm no carbon specialist or aerodynamicist, but even I could look at it and go... Don't think that's going to hang on. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, ultimately, it, it proved to be true, didn't it? I think they just made the mistake of they looked at the data and could see the loads were relatively stable. I just don't think they looked, they bothered to look at the screen, at what the car... So because just to paint the picture, that front wing was at a proper angle. One side of it was, was dragging on the ground and sparking. You could see there was major structural damage. So I think sometimes good sense doesn't just just doesn't override things and it, it was just madness not to think hang on bring it in because a lot of those reasons you mentioned about are people going to be coming in for slicks fairly soon anyway is actually a good argument for just getting the car in and saying well maybe we'll suffer for a few laps but at least we won't take a big risk it's just classic ferrari self-defeating and sort of a triumph of of hope over realism uh, which uh, has often afflicted that team at times but i suggest anyone just just try and find a picture of the car on the first lap or video before it fails actually when he's just driving around on, uh, after hitting the red bull it's so obvious Let's go on with the main event then, the real reason we're all here. In, in all the shenanigans on the opening lap, Weber had got up to second and he'd taken the lead at the first stops because Vettel came in a lap too early to switch to slicks. Once Weber was out front, he was managing his pace, but at times that resulted in Vettel getting backed towards the Mercedes cars, which were giving Red Bull a hard time. Vettel got on the radio to do something about this, saying, Mark is too slow, get him out of the way, he's too slow. Weber was asked to pick up the pace, which he considered a normal request coming up to the pit stops. And afterwards, Vettel wanted to clarify that radio message. He said, I think it was a bit misunderstood because what I said came across a little bit arrogant. But what I actually meant was that I had pressure from behind. Mark speeded up as soon as I got closer, to be fair. Um, and I'll just add at this point, we did ask Mark if he'd like to speak to us for this episode. And he politely declined and suggested that we check out what he said in his book. Uh, so he obviously knows that we love a book on Bring Back V10s, and that's exactly what we've done. So in Weber's book, which we'd of course recommend, uh, Mark said that the uh, pressure from the Mercedes drivers, led by Hamilton, did put Red Bull in a tricky situation, and it eventually decided to pit Vettel first at the final round of stops to protect him from being undercut by Hamilton, as Weber had enough of a gap out front to stop later and stay ahead. So, Ed, this little 
kind of radio exchange, little disagreement, little pressure point between the Red Bull drivers ended up just being a warm up for what was to come. What do you make of that explanation from from Vettel? Do you think he was merely asking for Weber to speed up rather than to get out of the way? Well, I think he was, but he wasn't merely doing that. It was correct that he wanted Weber to go quicker because he was being kind of pushed back a little bit too much to being a little bit exposed to the cars behind. That's fine. But also the way he phrased it was very clearly, uh, I'd actually also quite like you if you just let me go past him. So there's there's a bit of both there. We see drivers do this all the time, though, in F1. Half the time they do it when they can see their teammate ahead is being held up by someone and they've had like a lap to try and get past them. It's like, oh, they're rubbish. Let me past. And of course, sure enough, usually they can't, can't get around. So, so I think Vettel's phraseology, get him out of the way, does reflect what he'd have quite liked to, to have happened. But the fundamental situation, yeah, he's right. It was problematic and they did need to uh, to speed Weber up a little bit. So that aspect of it was normal. But there, there was a wider picture developing and brewing as we will uh, come on to. Yeah, we know where we're heading. Weber's slightly later start meant Vettel was right on his case after the stops were completed. And Vettel also had a brand new set of tyres, having saved a set during qualifying compared to Weber. Vettel was immediately told by his engineer to be careful and was then given the radio message, multi-map 2-1, multi-map 2-1 and look after your tyres, please. Weber was given that same message, uh, which meant car two in front of car one. And Weber said, when the call came, my first reaction was one of surprise. Rarely had the call come when it was in my favour. But he added, I knew within two laps that Seb was going to take matters into his own hands, despite reassurance over the radio that the race was mine. There were more messages over the radio as Vettel started to attack. Team boss Christian Horner got on the radio himself and said, come on, Sebastian, you need to give him space, hold position. And then he rather limply said, this is silly, Seb, come on. Weber got on the radio too, saying, yep, that's good teamwork. And the response from the pit wall was, okay, Mark, he was told, he was told. Vettel eventually made a move stick after a brilliant battle. And uh, and Weber wrote in his book, when he overtook me, I wasn't so much angry as very sad that the team had reached this sorry state. So Ed, we'll come to the fallout in a moment, but even without the context, uh, that, as you said, you didn't have much context when you were watching this from the media centre. Just purely watching the battle, how good was this? And does it perhaps get overlooked how brilliant their wheel-to-wheel dicing was, given the circumstances? Yeah, it was a good battle, and it's also easy to forget that it it wasn't just that one move and he was passed. There was a proper bit of, of fighting going on. But obviously what followed does give it that context so in retrospect it wasn't an entirely fair fight was it because one driver felt that they were holding position and and wasn't using everything that was available to him to stay ahead the other driver was fighting so it it, it can't really be separated from that but at the time it was uh it, yeah it was it was very very uh very very entertaining and it got you know when Vettel first attacks and gets pushed towards the pit wall it's close Vettel wasn't particularly happy about that either so you could see how much was at stake and it's uh yeah it's, it's it's a very memorable little fight but not perhaps the most fair fight there's ever been given that wider context yeah let's add some of that context at this point because Weber has said in a few interviews and in his book that his main regret is that he didn't turn his engine back up when he realized what was going on uh but he said there was so much going on in my head that it never occurred to me to do so so, Karun, given that Vettel had clearly taken matters into his own hands and was ignoring the team instructions, should Weber have 
turned the engine back up and properly got into this battle with Sebastian on track to try and defend his victory. Yeah, absolutely. In hindsight, you know, that's absolutely the right thing he should have done because at least he would have given himself a better chance. I think we have to, to bear in mind that, you know, in, in Mark's head, and as a driver, you're going along and you, you know, you've got a team order to say your teammates holding back, uh, you know, and staying in, in that position. If that teammate suddenly takes the decision to attack, you're still conflicted. And I'm sure Mark was still conflicted, you know, because in his head, he's doing what the team has asked them to do. And, he, you know, you think back to Peroni and Villeneuve or, or Jones and Reutemann, you know, the, the person who's been given the order uh, in, in, in their favor, effectively, are going, hang on a second, this should be a team, and they're conflicted then of, of what's going to happen. Are the, is the is the teammate going to give the place back? Are the team going to sort this out? You've got this optimistic view that the team will sort it out and, and you'll be given that place back. But in the end, yeah, you'd have to say in hindsight, Mark should have turned the engine up and, and cracked on. I think the phrase Mark's used in a couple of interviews was uh, wicked it up uh, with the engine. Where this story really exploded, as we mentioned at the beginning, was in the cool-down room before the podium. So Vettel wins the race and then somewhat sheepishly tried to approach Weber and uh, was shot down before he got anywhere near him with the famous uh, Multi-21, Seb. Yes, Multi-21. I'm not going to do the accent. Uh, Mark deserves better than that. Vettel tried to get through the podium interviews without letting too much on, saying it would be discussed internally. But Weber gave a bit more away, saying the team had told him the race was off. And then Seb made his own decisions today and will have protection as usual. And, uh, and I have to say, brilliant camera work from the directors on the F1 TV side to cut straight to a shot of Helmut Marco looking a bit nonplussed. I thought that was very good TV direction. Weber says in his book that after the podium, Vettel said that he wanted to give the win back and he'd realised that he'd messed up. Then they had to sit together in the press conference and Weber said, Seb was very uncomfortable. He had executed the whole thing and now he had to deal with it. Vettel was certainly scrambling by this point. In the press conference, he was a bit all over the place. He said things like, I did a big mistake today. We should have stayed in the positions that we were. I didn't ignore it on purpose, but I messed up in the situation and took the lead from Mark. I want to be honest and stick to the truth and apologise. I took quite a lot of risk to pass him and I should have behaved better. I'm the black sheep right now. I put myself in that position. So all I can say is apologies to Mark. The pass was deliberate, but I didn't mean to ignore the strategy. I made a mistake. I'm not proud that I made it. If I had the chance to do it again, I would do it differently. I didn't do it deliberately, so I didn't realise I had made a mistake. Only when I came back by the team's reaction, I realised. I had a very short word with Mark, and then it hit me quite hard, and I realised. I wasn't aware until we took our helmets off, really. Ed, do you think Vettel was surprised, either by the fact that Weber went so public with this instantly, or perhaps by the team's reaction that he saw when he got back to Park Ferme? Yeah, there's quite a bit of doublespeak there, isn't there, in what he's saying, as if he took the lead by accident. I get the feeling Vettel's quite conflicted in, in general, and probably was even in the race, because obviously he knew he'd been instructed to hold position, and whether it was his racing instinct wouldn't allow him to, or he felt he had every right not to, not to obey, I don't know. But certainly, 
Mark Webber making it so public and effectively grandstanding with that Multi-21. He could see the camera that was in front of him. He knew it was going out. And I don't blame Mark Webber at all for that because he was utterly in the right on this particular one. So I think that did put uh, Vettel a little bit on the on the back foot. And I had a guess, I wonder if Vettel just thought that it would just be kept quiet and it wouldn't be a big thing and they deal with it internally and that would be fine. He just thought he'd be allowed to do it, but Weber obviously wasn't willing to uh, to let it go, which which I completely understand. So it it's strange. I think at this stage he hadn't quite worked out how to handle it, which also takes away some of the idea that it was this great premeditated idea. But you know, he knew when he finished on the slowdown lap, he was warned by uh, his race engineer Rocky that they had some explaining to do. So I don't think he was completely unaware about what he'd uh, waded into, but I suspect he wanted it just to be dealt with in-house, and Weber had very, very much made sure it was out there in the in the public eye for discussion, and understandably so. Yeah, I think Mark did the right thing, because it's very easy for, if, if, if you think you're only going to get admonished in private, you probably think it's a, a risk worth taking. It later emerged that Vettel had considered this episode to be payback for Brazil 2012, when he felt Weber hadn't played fair with him when Vettel was trying to win the championship at the final race of that season. Vettel felt Weber had squeezed him at the start at Interlagos, which then contributed to Vettel losing ground and colliding with Bruno Senna four corners later, which could have cost him the championship. Horner has since said in various interviews, we asked Mark to play team that day and support the team in trying to win the world championship with Seb, and he squeezed him. We all felt Mark could have done a bit more that day. Weber had also got in Vettel's way a bit later in that race when Vettel was coming back through. And he'd been given the radio instruction during that race of multi-12. And Mark somewhat cheekily responded asking where that multi-switch was because he couldn't find it in the cockpit, which prompted a far more direct instruction to just get out of the way. Weber did address Brazil 2012 in his book. He said... I had absolutely no part in Seb's drama. Red Bull Racing management took exception to the fact that I didn't let Sebastian come down the inside, but you don't risk that kind of manoeuvre at that stage of the race. On the other hand, Dietrich Mateschitz told me I didn't have to move over for Sebastian. He should be able to look after himself. Looking at the two incidents, Karun, if we believe that it was payback, as Vettel said, for Brazil 2012, was multi-21 and Malaysia 2013 a fair payback? No, but I mean, it tells me what a what a uh, clear memory Sebastian Vettel's got because <laughs> clearly whatever happened in Brazil 2012 stuck with him uh, for, for a long time. And a Vettel never forgets. Yeah, and yeah, I, I, I'm not convinced that it's, it's really a tit-for-tat situation, frankly. You know, the incident that Seb had was down at turn four with, with Bruno. And yeah, you could argue this and the other. But on the opening lap of the race, it's very hard for, for drivers to be to be clearly looking in their mirrors, for you know, for Mark to be looking to make sure that Sebastian is safe on the opening lap. You know, yeah, you could argue, of course, he could have done more later on to let him pass and make it easier for him. Um, yeah, that's a fair point. But... I, I'm not sure that that it was a real, you know, tit-for-tat situation there. Now let's look at the Red Bull Pitwall's role in all of this. We've already gone over some of the radio messages uh, from the time, including that attempted intervention 
from team boss Horner. But let's hear what Horner thinks of it a few years removed from it all. Last year, David Coulthard hosted a series of special interviews for F1 sponsor Heineken while racing was postponed during lockdown. And this is what Horner told him about that day. You know, we'd lost the first race in Australia. I think Kimi had won it. And, and then we turned up in Malaysia. We got ourselves into a one-two position. And it was right, OK, all bets are off now. Let's just bring these cars home, nurse the tyres, get to the finish. And so Multi-21 was a code for, very simple, two, car two ahead of car one. Multi-12 would have been the other way around. Um, and the instruction was given to both drivers. Um, and Sebastian kept selling purple sectors. And I could see exactly what was unfolding in front of us because there was all this, as I say, frustration carried over from the end of the 12th season. And there was no way that he was not going to have a go at, at, at winning that, uh, that race. So, you know, Sebastian had the advantage and quite a significant advantage of a new set of tyres that he carried over from qualifying. So he got a big grip advantage, plus he was on a different compound. So, you know, he had a huge advantage over Mark at this stage of the race. And, of course, he went for the pass. You know, Mark was very upset about it. The team was up. I was really pissed off about it because... You know, he'd ignored the orders from the from the pit wall and seeing your two cars racing like this, you know, you can end up with another turkey situation. And the priority at this stage is to achieve, you know, maximum points, you know, for, for the team. So, you know, it's, it was very frustrating. We spoke about it afterwards, uh, about the importance of, of team, but their relationship was was broken by this point. You can see you know, in the, in the debrief room after the race, you know, emotions running high, but, you know, the relationship between the two of them by this stage was so bad. So I remember, you know, we finished first and second in the race and everybody was pissed off. <laughs> you know, it was ridiculous. You know, we've beaten Lewis Hamilton. Seb's actually upset because in the end, because I think he's recognised that, well, maybe I made a mistake here because the reception he got afterwards wasn't perhaps what he what he expected. Mark was pissed off. The team was pissed off. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was the most unhappy one-two finish we've ever had. Horner was grilled about this on the Sunday night in Malaysia at the time, and he was asked why Vettel wasn't ordered to give the place back. And Horner said, do you honestly think that if we had told him, slow down and give the place back, he would have given it back? There was no point. He had made it quite clear what his intention was by making the move. He knew what the communication was. He chose to ignore it. He put his interest beyond what the team's position was. Former Benetton slash Renault team boss Flavio Briatore, who was part of Weber's management, of course, was very critical of Red Bull's leadership on Italian radio after this, saying this was proof that no one is in charge at Red Bull. Vettel is the boss there. If there was a manager with balls, he would have made them switch positions again. Briatore later put out a statement trying to clarify his comments and saying he had a lot of respect for Horner, who he felt was doing a great job. Although, curiously, he did repeatedly call Horner Chris in that statement, which I've never heard before. But, Karun, what did you make of how Horner handled it at the time? Could he have been stronger? Would that have made a difference? I kind of sympathise with Christian because, you know, he took the unusual step of getting on the radio himself and making the call to Sebastian and saying it looked silly and... You could see visibly, you know, you had Ian Morgan, you had Adrian Newey on the pit wall alongside Christian. You know, they were all visibly unhappy with the fact that 
Sebastian was being defined about it. But, you know, ultimately, Seb's the one driving the car. You know, what are they going to do? Lean over the pit wall and smack him on the head. It's, they just can't. And um, so I did sympathize because it's quite clear that from that episode, you know, Sebastian undermined the management's wishes and, and took the decision into his own hands and did what he thought was best for himself. And, you know, that's not a great look for team management when you're, you're effectively your employee, um, you know, doesn't follow orders. So from, from that moment on, once Sebs make that decision, Christian's then just on a, a PR management, crisis management mode, isn't he? He's just trying to make sure that despite the fact they've come out of it one, two, and everyone looks grumpy, he's trying to juggle the plates and make sure that it's not done a huge amount of damage to the team's reputation. So, yeah, to be honest, I, I have a bit of sympathy for Christian in that moment. And I have to say, uh, in the live broadcast at the time, I think the only message we got from Horner was the this is silly, Seb, which didn't uh, make him come across particularly authoritative. But there was that other message where he very clearly said, hold position. So I think he'd, he'd done what he could, really. But... F1 had a three-week break before the next race in China, which everybody probably needed by this point. Weber uh, spent some of that time cooling off in Australia, and he went to China hoping that he and Vettel could sort things out. But he said in his book, the ensuing conversation was the most disappointing moment of our entire relationship. Seb said he was pissed off by what I had said on the podium in Malaysia, and that while he respected me as a driver, he had no respect for me as a person. That was a heavy line for me. I couldn't help thinking someone must have got in his ear to cause such an about face. Vettel then took that new perspective into an incredible Thursday media session in China where he said he didn't consider himself the bad guy. He'd never had support from Weber. And while he still claimed he'd not understood the multi-21 message in the heat of the moment and that he should have understood it, he would probably still have done the same thing because in his words, Mark didn't deserve it. Now, Ed and Karun, you were both there that day in China, so I'm interested to hear what you both think, but we'll come to you first, Ed. What was going through your mind as you were witnessing this incredible kind of change of heart from Vettel? Yeah, he almost seemed to on the hoof decide just to, to go for it, didn't he? I presume he had some PR strategy that he was aiming to trot out, and he probably start, he sort of started saying it, so this didn't sound very convincing. Then he just was, I think, honest, and probably that's all he could do. They were way past the point where they could cover it over they couldn't do remember turkey 2010 when they'd had the collision and they they put that photo out of weber and vettel at the factory kind of oh, that was barging each other's shoulder oh what are we like it's like you couldn't have done that it, it was gone so i actually quite like the fact vettel just thought you know i'm just going to say what i think and you know the whole thing about where does it all start we had this with prost and senna didn't we we've talked about that in the past and you can just keep going back you know x did this y did that x did that you go all the way back to i think 2011 british grand prix did uh if memory serves Weber was attacking vettel late on despite being told not to so again there's there's faults on both sides in this so i kind of understand why vettel maybe felt Weber hadn't always supported him as he wanted to and Weber felt the team didn't give him the chance he should have done you know every driver wants the team to 100% support them and thinks their teammates should be there to serve them shouldn't they so i just think vettel thought you know i'm just going to be honest and it actually worked quite well in just calming it all down ironically because he 
said what what had clearly happened and what he was clearly thinking. So, yeah, very odd. I think the one thing I would also say is that excuse about not understanding the multi-21 message, I don't know, maybe he didn't. I'd be surprised if he didn't. But also, it winds me up that since they unbanned team orders, which is a stupid and unworkable ban, teams still use these codes. If they just said, hold position, there is no room for confusion. As soon as you give room for plausible deniability, this kind of thing happens. So it's down to all F1 teams just to be a little bit more honest. I've got no problem with team orders, but I hate it when it's done in code and then it just turns into this sort of absurd circus. But Vettel-wise, I quite like what he did, actually. He was he was being he was being honest, and I suppose the phrase would be he was owning it, wasn't he? What did you think, Karun? You, you were there as well. Were you picking your jaw up off the floor or were you uh, cracking out the popcorn? Uh, no, I was I was completely picking my job off the floor. I remember sitting there um, next to Martin Brundle. We both went, and obviously, you know, the last time we'd all publicly heard from Seb was after the race in the press conference, as you mentioned, where he, you know, he sounded almost apologetic for what had happened, and you know, and you thought, okay, this will be interesting. He's had a few weeks of reflection, and he's gonna put a bit more meat on the bone and apologize once again and say all the right things that they have to move on. And um, and I, I remember sitting in the room and as he started to speak, I, I, I looked across to find the uh, Red Bull Racing uh, comms people and, and you could just see their faces. And, and you know, I strongly suspect, I, I vaguely remember actually somebody scurrying off, no doubt to go find Christian to say, hmm, you probably should be listening to this because this is all starting to implode again. And um, yeah, it was just, I mean, that moment where he said, uh, I can't remember the exact words, but paraphrasing, you know, he couldn't find the right switches and he still isn't sure of the switches. It's just, it was just hilarious because as he said it, he had a sort of, you know, cheeky grin on his face. And I looked around the room and, you know, there were a whole load of us there and, and this, Ed, you might remember this. It was like a ripple of laughter, wasn't it? That just sort of went across the room because we all knew that that was just a blatantly not true. And he knew it wasn't true. And yet he, he sort of persevered down that path. It, 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 was, it was extraordinary. It was still one of the most extraordinary um, press conferences I, I've been to. And I, I, I kind of believe Mark, actually. I feel like, you know, I don't know who it was or, or if this actually happened, but... Clearly, between um, Malaysia and China, somebody had had a word with Sebastian and said, no, 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 you have nothing to apologize for. You won the Grand Prix. You're the winner. Don't apologize for that. Take the win. Take the points. And I, 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 the fact that there was such a U-turn in the, in the way he was speaking and the way he was, um, you know, sharing his thoughts on the whole experience tells me that, you know, that sort of U-turn can only come from some sort of an outside influence. I think. Yeah, the it's the delivery as well. There is footage of this media session doing the rounds on the internet. I'd suggest anyone tries to go and find it because you can almost see Vettel getting more confident as he as he keeps going, as he says more. And he almost looks like he's enjoying it uh, by the end. It's, it's phenomenal. And during this exchange, Vettel was asked if he'd been punished for what he did. And he, he was very amused by that question saying uh, maybe it's a little bit of a dreamland that you all live in, but what do you expect to happen? Make a suggestion. And uh, Weber said in his book that when his partner and manager, Anne Neil, pushed Horner about why Vettel hadn't been punished, 
Horner said the team received a letter from Vettel's lawyer in the days after the race saying Red Bull was in breach of his contract by giving him an unreasonable instruction slash team order. And he said in the end, both drivers were paid a hefty win bonus for that race, kind of as the the final full stop on the matter. But looking at that wording, Karun, was it really unreasonable for Red Bull to ask Vettel to stay behind his teammate in the, the closing moments of the race? Uh, well, I mean, obviously Seb thought so. Um, but I think ultimately the team decided that that was the thing, that was their plan, that was their strategy. Given the fragility of the tyres, given the fact that they were, you know, suffering with higher tyre day than everybody else, they had quite a gap to the two Mercedes cars at that point, uh, and then obviously the rest of the field. So they wanted to protect the one too. And, you know, I don't think that was an unreasonable request uh, from a team standpoint. You know, they look at it and go, hang on, we're in a good position here. We've got a one-two. Yeah, let's let's take that and and stay where we are. But yeah, clearly Seb didn't agree with that. Now, incredibly, there was another team orders row in the same race, which got a little overshadowed by Multi-21. But it was also overshadowed because both drivers did as they were told. The Mercedes drivers' pursuit of the Red Bulls for so long meant they were very tight on fuel at the end, with Hamilton's situation much worse than Rosberg's. And Lewis was the leading car of the Mercedes at this point. So Rosberg had been on the radio saying, I can go so much faster, just let me drive past. And he was met with a response by Ross Braun, who said, negative, negative, Nico. Lewis's pace is what we are asking him to do, and he can go a lot faster as well. Rosberg then came back to say, turn the speed up a bit. This is too slow. And Braun responded, Nico, please drop back. Leave a gap. We have to look after the cars. There's a massive gap behind and nothing to gain in front. I want to bring these cars home, please. Braun said later that he didn't want the drivers slipstreaming each other and using DRS to pass and repass, and he could foresee a situation where it could get very delicate at the end on fuel and there wasn't a great deal to gain. He said the lowest risk solution was for the drivers to hold station. But he did also admit that Mercedes would review if it had been too aggressive with its starting fuel load in its bid to start the race with a slightly lighter car. Karun, before we go any further into how the drivers reacted after the race, what did you make of this situation as it was unfolding and how Ross handled it over the radio? It was a very, very clear instruction, wasn't it? Um, But equally, I think we've seen that these are two drivers who actually, you know, subsequently followed team orders, didn't they? You know, you look at Nico in Monaco that year where he moved aside for Lewis. You look at Lewis and Bottas in Budapest that year where, you know, Lewis got ahead and then gave the place back on the final lap. Uh, you know, they're, they're clearly two characters who are believed and understood in the team game a bit more and, and follow team orders a bit more than Seb did, frankly, at that time in his career. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, on one hand, you could say, yes, Ross was very clear in explaining things in a succinct way and had the authority to, you know, to do so. But the recipients also took it in a better way than Sebastian did, quite clearly. Hamilton didn't feel happy about what had happened afterwards. He uh, he also didn't look that delighted on the podium. He said he felt... That was the world's most miserable podium, yeah. that, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I can't think... I, even when you go back to like Indy 2005, at least Tiago looked happy on the podium that day. 
This genuinely was the grumpiest podium of all time. Yeah, it's incredible. And I bet Martin Brundle had a, had a whale of a time interviewing those three up there. Uh, Lewis had said that he felt Rosberg should have been the one on the podium, not him. And Lewis blamed himself for not managing his fuel well enough earlier in the race. He said if the same situation happened again in the future, he would probably let Rosberg through, but he was following orders to hold posi position and he praised Rosberg's maturity. Rosberg said he understood what happened both at the time and afterwards, but he wanted to see if he could attack the Red Bulls. Uh, however, when we got to China, Nico said the difficulty was that we hadn't really discussed it beforehand. That was the mistake that we did. So going forward, the important thing is really that everything is discussed. Now, if you thought that Lewis Hamilton's uh, comment earlier about moving to Mercedes was the best decision he ever made was an understatement. How's this one from Nico Rosberg, who said there will be times to fight between teammates in the future. And uh, Nico and Lewis certainly delivered on that in the years to come. So, Ed, we've we've talked about how Ross handled it. What did you make of the reaction from the two drivers? Yeah, I think they didn't make a huge thing of it after simply because they don't worry too much when it's third and fourth, obviously. It's easy to to do what Hamilton did and, and feel that it was uh, that Rosberg should have been ahead because you can take the kind of generous view when you're the one who's got the result. But it, it's an interesting one because I do wonder what might have happened with that had things been a little bit different because there, there tends to be a bit of a hierarchy of controversy, doesn't there? And let's say the whole multi-21 thing hadn't happened. That Mercedes thing would have been a bigger deal. There'd have been more questions about it and it would have been ramped up a little bit more. So who knows what might have happened there? Obviously, it wasn't on the same scale as, uh, as multi-21. But I think what's abundantly clear is you've got two drivers, obviously they knew each other pretty well of old, and they both knew that the hope and the, maybe the expectation was that the following year they'd be in a position to fight for the championship. So this season's important to them in terms of asserting themselves. Obviously, Rosberg wants to, as the incumbents, ensure that he stays uh, stays as the main man at Mercedes. Hamilton coming in wants to get on, on top of Rosberg. So we're kind of in the foothills of what's to follow, aren't we? That's uh, That Rosberg quote you, you pulled out, that, that there will be times to fight between teammates in the future. If you were scripting it, you'd, you'd make that part of your little preamble sort of section before it all sort of really <laughs> erupts. So both Rosberg and Hamilton know, know what's going on here. And I suspect Braun wanted to lay down a marker as well. And it, and it worked fine for a bit, as, as we've discussed. But obviously in the future, things will be different. But it's funny, that, that line about that they need to discuss these these things before so they know what it is. Given the amount of talk there was down the line about rules of engagement, et cetera, it shows it oh, shows it took Mercedes it shows it took Mercedes a very, very long time to come up with those rules of engagement. But trouble is racing drivers, they all love the rules of engagement when they say that if they're ahead, they should stay ahead. They don't like it if it's the other way around, and that's always the problem. Uh, hence why I imagine Vettel rather liked multi-12, but wasn't so keen on multi-21. So, yeah, this this it's just this sort of little foreshadowing of what's to follow that's, that's just quite a fun footnote to this race. Yeah, and we'll leave it there for Malaysia 2013 and multi-21. Uh, we hope you enjoyed us giving it the, the bring back V10s treatment, even if we were two cylinders down. Thanks to Ed and Karun for uh, for coming along. Let us know if you'd like us to do more episodes from this era in the future. This is our only one in this series. 
As I said earlier, we've pretty much reached the deadline to get your questions in for our series finale episodes, so be quick if you want to ask us anything about F1 from 1989 to 2005. Uh, send us a question using the hashtag BringBackV10s on Twitter, email BringBackV10s at the-race.com, or submit a question with a five-star podcast review if you think we've earned it. Next time, we've got our final regular episode of the series, and it'll be a painful one for me, as we'll be revisiting how BAR, a team with huge budget built for Jacques Villeneuve, managed to score zero points in its first season. <laughs>